0: Hello and welcome back to The Vinyl Countdown, the podcast where I, Jeremy Levine, break down my favorite vinyl releases from cover to cover and everything in between. This is week number four of the October Spooktacular 3D Beyond the Gates of Hell. It's been pretty fun, kind of weird the way it's worked out with my work schedule, uh, kind kind of trying to just put out, you know, get all these episodes done on time and all that. And um, It's been a lot of fun getting to watch all these episodes, watch all these movies again. And talking to people, I've interviewed people for the past three episodes. Uh, This one, this week and next week is just going to be me, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun and I hope everybody's been enjoying it so far. Uh, This week I get to dive into yet another classic, the 1980 John Carpenter film, The Fog. Uh, A lot to get into here, but let's head on down to Variant Corner. Uh, Because there's... Actually, a lot to get in here too because this one's a little different than most of the movies that I covered this month because it has a ton of vinyl pressings, like 11 of them in total. Like for next week, the movie that I'm doing, uh, the first time on vinyl ever was just like a few months ago, right? So there's two pressings of it and there's there's some other ones like last week. Nightmare on Elm Street only only had a handful, like uh, Maniac Cop had two and Psycho Gorman had... One, because it literally just came out. So, uh, this one has had a bunch. So, the original Pressing was released in 1984, which was four years after the movie came out. But it only had eight tracks. And uh, it starts with a track called Matthew Ghost Story, which is the third track on the soundtrack slash score that I have. Also, the prologue is missing, which is the ghost story that's told at the beginning of the movie that tells why the story of the ghost ship is coming back to Antonio Bay and whatnot. Uh, that's not on this original pressing, so one of those actually just sold for one hundred and seventy-four dollars, which is seems crazy. Like I said, it's it, it's there's not a lot to it. Like there's not there's not a whole bunch on it. You know, just there's like a couple of you know songs here and there. But as far as the music from the movie, but it's like not a, a whole whole bunch. Uh, then in nineteen eighty-five, uh, Germany got the same pressing, same track listing. Uh, these are going for around uh, thirty-seven to fifty-four dollars. Uh, There's one weird outlier, like 116. So, fast forward all the way to 2013. uh, Death Waltz released an expanded score featuring movie cues never before offered on vinyl. Uh, This one has the same exact track listing as the 2020 40th anniversary Waxwork release as well. So, with this one, there is a clear with a white haze uh, on disc 1 and then clear with green haze for disc 2. That version is going for around $100 and up. Uh, The second variant is clear with green and white splatter for disc one, and then clear with blue and white splatter for disc two. They're actually going fairly cheap, anywhere from 40 to 70 bucks, with again one weird outlier at like 123. So uh, pressing count totals 700 for these combined. However, individual pressing counts for both are unknown. There was a repress of this version also in 2013, according to Discogs, that was limited to 1,000 on gold vinyl. Prices range from there for on that one from uh, $35 to as high as $232. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, There's also a special limited edition on black vinyl, 200 only, uh, sold at the uh, launch party screening of The Fog by Cigarette Burns and Death Waltz Records. Uh, There are two of these for sale for $94 and $100. 2015 saw another variant pop up, this time with new artwork Uh, one white disc, one green disc, but it's more of like a teal color i guess uh no pressing count on this one but uh they're starting around 34 and up to 52 so it's not really bad uh 2016 once again repress appears limited to 500 this time again on green and white vinyl but this time the green is more of a translucent color but is also like a slightly darker green and it's like a legit green i think like um the first pressing of uh somewhere city by or angel if you have that it's like basically that color right uh prices range from 37 to 50 so again not too bad uh these two releases were put out by the label silver screen who who i wasn't familiar with uh although browsing through the releases the the one movie that i recognize some movies here and there but the one that really stood out was the excellent and severely underrated movie in my opinion uh called frank i don't want to say too much about it but if you haven't seen it or haven't heard of it i highly recommend finding it and uh watching it because it's really good. Then finally, we get to the 2020 Wax Work Releases. Uh, there was a Coke Bottle Clear uh, with red and white splatter, which was a Sacred Bones Records exclusive, uh, limited to $500. Uh, prices ranged from 50 to 100 on that one. Uh, next is a white-blue-green swirl, pressing count unknown, going from 50 all the way to 156 And last but not least, the one that I owned and my favorite of the bunch, the Ghost Eyes variant, it's a Coke bottle clear with red circles on each side of the disc and looks fucking sick. I'll be sure to post more pics of it when the episode releases, because uh, I can't, you'll have to just see it, but it's pretty great. These are selling anywhere from 50 to $130. Uh, I remember ordering this during Hurricane Laura last year, and it had taken a while to get here, but I was so happy when it did. The, the record sounds amazing, the artwork, the packaging is outstanding, uh, which is kind of what we've come to expect at this point and I will say the artwork and some of the other stuff they they really I don't know they really like sold this release short on previous releases uh this waxwork release takes its time and it really looks fucking awesome with everything that it um with like it's showing uh, the the ghosts and the ships and all these really cool touches with the artwork and the other ones just look like cheap and just I don't know like, like they got some random, like, an intern to say, hey, man, do something for The Fog. Just, I don't know, throw this shit together real quick. Which, kind of, again, come to expect this from Waxwork, right? Like, they, they are known for this and uh, did not disappoint once again. Uh, now, that ended up being a little bit more complicated, I guess, than, <laughs> than I thought it would be. Because, like, you know, some of the releases are, like... There's actually a, I didn't mention it yet, but the um, there's one release that's on CD only, and none of the vinyl releases have this. But there is a an interview with Jamie Lee Curtis on one of these uh, releases, on like the CD release, I believe, from 2000, which is kind of cool. I kind of wish that was on the vinyl version. I think that'd be pretty neat. But um, they opted to skip that. So let's get into the movie, shall we? Um, The Fog is a 1980 American supernatural horror film directed by John Carpenter, who also co-wrote the screenplay and created the music for the film. Uh, It stars Adrienne Barbeau, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Atkins, uh, Janet Leigh, and Hal Holbrook. Uh, It tells the story of a strange glowing fog that sweeps over a small coastal town in California, bringing... With it, the vengeful ghost of Mariners, who were killed in a shipwreck there 100 years before. Uh, The Fog was not well-received by critics upon release, but was a hit at the box office, making over $21 million domestically on a $1.1 million budget. Uh, Since release, it has received positive retrospective reviews and has become a cult classic. Uh, A remake of the film was released in 2005, which was universally panned by critics. And as someone who actually saw that version first it's god-awful i would recommend track it down and watch it and watch the original like back-to-back or whatever and um just for shits and giggles but it's it's terrible <laughs> like hilariously terrible you know so spoiler alert uh not really but i mean you know it's a 41 year old movie at this point uh, i am going to dive into the kind of the beats of the movie here so if anyone somehow has not seen it go watch it come back and then uh we can talk about it so as the coastal town of Antonio Bay uh, in Northern California is about to celebrate its 100th anniversary, paranormal activity begins occurring at midnight. There's a really cool scene here where uh, there's a guy working in the in a gas station where like there's like six or seven cars that start going off or some shit. Maybe that's maybe not the gas station. There's somewhere where there's a bunch of cars going off with um, all at once with their alarms, and then there's all these other little like creepy, cool uh, these shots that uh, John Carpenter is like you know kind of. Um, at this point, he's, uh, what, two years uh, removed from Halloween, so, you know, that movie was made on, you know, kind of a shoestring budget also, and they really did a lot by not showing everything and making it scary and kind of dreadful and everything else, like, not so much, like, ooga-booga, you know, jump scares or gore, more with just, like, something's in the corner and then it's not, or is something in the corner... Or there are some jump scares, but they they execute those very well. And this movie, kind of the same thing, um, which I'll get into. There's a lot of gore in this movie too, but that was kind of an afterthought. So, anyway, uh, the town priest, Father Malone, discovers his grandfather's diary at the church. Um, after a piece of brick falls out from, from falls from the wall, and um, this guy is pretty pretty great. The guy I, I don't remember the actor playing uh, the priest, but he is like he has a guy working for him at the church, and the guy's cleaning up, and he's like, "Father, can I?" can I get paid? You know, I guess he just hasn't been paying this guy <laughs> and he's like, how about you? Cause first he tells him like, come back tomorrow around like uh one o'clock or something like that. And then he's like, can I get paid? Uh, you know, whatever. And he's and the, father, and the priest is like, how about you come back at like four? Cause he's, I guess he's probably like, I'm not going to pay you motherfucker. Like seems like a pretty shitty gig for this guy who's cleaning up this church. But <laughs> also his priest is in there getting hammered. Like he's drinking whiskey and shit. It was pretty great. And then, you know, this town, this diary falls out that's uh, his grandfather's diary just, you know, happens to fall in his lap, essentially. And uh, it reveals that in 1880, the six founders of Antonio Bay, including his grandfather, deliberately sank a clipper ship named the Elizabeth Dane so that its wealthy, leprosy-afflicted owner, Blake, would not establish a leper colony nearby. Uh, the conspirators use some of the gold plundered from the ship to fund the town. Uh, meanwhile, uh, three fishermen are out at sea when a strange glowing fog envelops their trawler. Uh, the fog brings with it the Elizabeth Dane, carrying the vengeful rem- uh, remnants of Blake and his crew who kill the fishermen. Uh, this scene, it's, it's, some of the effects are a little bad, like like the fog effects, whatever, it was the 80s, it's whatever. But, when they're on the ship, uh, I think it's done really well, um... You know, they're, they're very, um, they're concealed, like, in the shadows and everything, and, uh, there's some genuinely kind of creepy moments, which, it's funny, because I showed this movie last year to the kids, I was thinking, it's, it's not super bloody, it's not really that bad, so I was like, you know, hey, you wanna, you, know, you wanna watch a grown-up scary movie? Ooh, we're gonna watch The Fog. And within, like, 25 minutes, they were both just completely uninterested, and this scene in particular, I can remember, uh, Spencer being like, oh, is this scary? It's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> But I think it's done really well. I think at some point, I don't know if they're going to grow up and start to appreciate these things or if, you know, horror is just different now, I guess. And things they're watching, even the kids stuff is just shot so much differently. Like it's not really the same, but I I thought it would be neat to show them. Apparently I was wrong. But uh, so that happens, right? And uh, Nick Castle, uh, meanwhile, is driving home. And uh, this is Tom Atkins, which uh, shout out to the Maniac Cop episode where it's crazy. I even texted Richie this... um, who I did the Maniac Cop episode with, uh, Tom Atkins in this movie. This is this movie's eight years before Maniac Cop, and he looks like he's aged twenty years from this point to Maniac Cop. But um, I, I don't know if it's the haircut because he has like a like a not a weird haircut, but he has a, a different haircut. Definitely is a younger man's haircut, I guess. In this movie, he's the, and, and in Maniac Cop, he's definitely like you know styled to look like a seasoned cop. But, I mean, eight years I feel like wouldn't make that much of a difference in the way your face looks. But that motherfucker looks old compared to what he looks like here. But whatever the case, he's still great. So he picks up a young hitchhiker named Elizabeth Solly, which is played by a young Jamie Lee Curtis, who, again, was in Halloween. And uh, there was a lot of actors left. I mean, a lot of people that John Carpenter worked with numerous times, right, throughout the 70s and 80s. And uh, I don't feel like I went through the list, but Jamie Lee Curtis obviously was in Halloween. And there's some others that pop up in some of his other movies, right? So they're driving, and all of a sudden, they're all the windows just fucking blow out, pow! Like it's a real kind of crazy scene, or whatever. the uh, The following morning, the local re- uh, radio DJ uh, DJ Stevie Wayne, who is uh, Adrian Barbeau, is given a piece of driftwood by her son Andy. Uh, it's inscribed with the word "Dane," and Andy said he found it on the beach. So you know, she goes out there to the lighthouse and. Uh, and takes it she takes it with her to the lighthouse where she broadcasts her radio show and sets the wood down next to a tape player that's playing and then the wood just starts like seeping water and causes the tape player to short to short circuit or whatever, right? A mysterious man's voice emerges from the tape and swears revenge and the words six must die appear on the wood before it bursts into flames. Uh, which on the center label of one of the discs for the waxwork release it has that six must die. Uh, Wood or whatever which is pretty cool But you know she extinguishes the fire And then sees the wood once again Say Dane and the tape player begins working Normally again Uh, so after Locating the missing boat Nick and Elizabeth find the corpse of one of the fishermen Dick Baxter with his eyes gouged out uh, the other two are missing. One of whom is the husband of Kathy Williams, who is overseeing the town's centennial celebrations. Now Elizabeth, she is alone. They cut to the to the hospital, whatever for whatever reason, she's in the autopsy room with this corpse. And this corpse, like it's kind of a cool scene, like just rises from the table and starts coming after, her and then just collapses. You know, she screams as great as Jamie Lee Curtis can scream, right? And Nick and the coroner go rushing back in the room, where once again this lifeless corpse. Uh, has now carved the number three on the floor, as in he is the third death of the six that need to happen, right? Uh, that evening, as the town celebrations begin, local weatherman Dan calls Stevie at the radio station, who Dan sounds like kind of a creep, like he's... <sighs> I don't want to say he's a creep, but he definitely has some, like, borderline, like, shitty kind of pickup lines and kind of trying to be real, like, oh, could keep you company <laughs> type of shit, and it's like, dude, cut it out. But... This scene is really fucking stupid because (laughs) he starts hearing... He hears a knock at the door, right? He's on the phone with her, and she's like, Dan, get out of there. The fog is coming your way. Because she's starting to suspect that the fog is moving around. That's one thing that happens with the the initial deaths of the people on the boat is this fog is, like, uh, moving, I think, due west or something. And Stevie's like, oh, it's definitely moving due east. And this guy's like, no, fog doesn't move that way. And, you know, it's because it's a ghost fog, right? And I think she's starting to suspect something is going on with it, and she's like, "Dan, please get out of there, or whatever you need to go." And he's just like, "Hold on, somebody's at the door." And then he goes around, and he's like, "Somebody's messing with me," and you know, it's a fucking ghost and a fog, and it's like, "What the fuck, dude? Like, how's?" It's just so, he's so oblivious and dumb, and I think he like just opens the door, and it's like, "Oh man, must be kids that somehow made this fog come around." my house or my place where I'm at or whatever. And then also these ghosts It must be fucking people messing with me. And then he just gets killed. And it's like, you probably deserve to idiot. But uh, Stevie, hears all this, right? She's like yelling at him to fucking stop or whatever. And, um, so she proceeds with the show. The fog starts to move inland, uh, disrupting like the town's telephone and power lines and all that, uh, using a backup generator. She begs her listeners to get to, to go to her house and save her son, uh, because she can see that the fog is closing in to where her house is, which this part too, cause she says on the radio, she's like yelling or maybe she's on the phone at one point with her son and she's like, listen to the nanny. Y'all got to go do whatever. Uh, Mrs. Corbett's right. I don't understand why she couldn't just leave because she even, she even asks her like, um, can you just like come here, I guess, or whatever. And she's like, Oh, I, I wish I could, but I can't leave. It's like, why the fuck can't you leave? your job that it's like you own this radio station, you do this radio show. I get it. But there's a murderous fog coming for your young son. And it's like, I get, maybe it's like, Oh, I want to make sure everybody I'm trying to do my best to, uh, warn the town. But it's like, man, you have kind of warned the town. The town knows at this point, or like they should, you've kind of done a lot. You've done a lot trying to get them ready for, or, or get them to understand what's going on. Like leave and go get your, So, I don't know. That just seems crazy. But this old lady, Miss Corbett, uh, she gets uh, murked, and they come after Andy, but then uh, old Tim Atkins, or Tom Atkins there, sorry, uh, arrives and rescues him. Stevie advises everybody in town to head to the town's church. Uh, Once inside there, uh, Nick, Elizabeth, uh, Andy, Kathy, uh, her assistant Sandy, and Father Malone take refuge in a back room as the fog arrives outside. Now, inside the room, they look at a gold cross in the wall cavity, which is made from the rest of the stolen gold. Uh, As the revenants begin their attack, Malone takes the gold cross out into the chapel. Uh, Knowing they've returned to take six lives in lieu of the six original conspirators who led them to their deaths, Malone offers the gold and himself to Blake to spare the others. Uh, At the lighthouse, where revenants uh, attack Stevie... Uh, they trap her on the roof. You know, inside the church, Blake seizes the gold cross, which begins to glow. Uh, Nick pulls Malone away from the cross seconds before it disappears in a blinding flash of light along with Blake and his crew. Uh, the revenants at the lighthouse also disappear and the fog vanishes. Uh, Stevie gets down from the roof and makes it back to safety. Now, uh, everybody leaves the church and Malone contemplates why he was spared by Blake and asks, why not six? Given that there were, had only been five deaths. Uh, however... Uh, moments later, the fog reappears inside the, f- the church along with the revenants, and Blake decapitates Malone as the screen cuts to black. Pretty great. <laughs> right? So, with this movie, there are kind of some fun facts here that I'm getting from a Mental Floss uh, article, mm-hmm. where... John Carpenter was inspired by several like creepy British things, I guess. Uh, Stonehenge from one, right? His um in 1977, with him, him and his uh, co-writer, producer slash girlfriend Deborah Hill, were in England promoting Assault on Precinct 13. They visited uh, Stonehenge and were struck by the eerie, foggy, mysterious atmosphere. He was also inspired by the 1958 British film called the Trollenberg Terror, released in the U.S. as the Crawling Eye, in which creatures hide in the mist. Also, it says that you can um, thank David Cronenberg, sort of, for the fog's gore. Because originally, like I said earlier, he had gone the route of how how he did with Halloween. There was not a lot of gore in this movie. It was, again, more kind of what you didn't see that was more horrifying, because you can kind of fill in the gaps and whatever, right? But gore was becoming popular with horror audiences, because by this time, 1980... You've got Friday the 13th that's out. You've got... You're still a few years away from Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, there's some other movies that are coming out that are just like... You know, it's becoming a thing, right? Uh, so the studio was like, Hey, man, you're doing reshoots anyway. Please uh, add some blood. So he did that. And, um, you know, it turned out... Yeah, it wasn't too bad. You know, I think John Carpenter said he didn't care for it. Like, he did some... The reshoots or whatever was, was one of those things like... Uh, he, he recalled the experience uh, after viewing a rough cut of the film. He said that he was dissatisfied with the results, and uh, Carpenter said it was terrible. I had a movie that didn't work, and I knew it in my heart. So then they added the scene with John Houseman telling the ghost story to a fascinated children by a campfire, right? Which you know that was an afterthought. Like that's the first, that's the opening of the movie, right? And it says, you know, about one third of the film consists of footage shot by after Carpenter and Hill watched the rough cut and again and just were like, hey, this isn't working. So they added scenes, scenes they reshot others. They introduced John Houseman as the old man with the campfire, and it's just like, you know, they they really, I, I think it's for the better. Obviously, I, I, I'd actually be curious to see what the original cut looked like, but um, yeah, it just it's one of those things. It it increased the film's budget from one million dollars to one point. $1 million. So really not too much more to, to redo all this, right? The novelization of The Fog clarifies an important plot point. Dennis Etchison wrote the paper book novelization of the movie, which he'd done the same for Halloween, in which he made better sense of the film's somewhat jumbled plot. One key example, though it's implied in the movie, the novel makes it clear that the six who must die are descendants of the original six whose nefarious deeds cursed the town. So... Yeah, I guess I didn't really go into that, but they don't necessarily make that clear, I guess. They really don't make it super clear. But um, also, Jamie Lee Curtis, she did this movie as a a favor. <laughs> the only post-Halloween job she got were, was a guest on The Love Boat and Buck Rogers, and she was getting discouraged with acting. So John Carpenter added a role in The Fog just for her. Uh, Then Prom Night and Terror Train came along while The Fog was still in post-production. The three movies being released back to back to back in 1980 led Curtis to being dubbed uh, Cinema's New Scream Queen. So, (laughs) oh, I didn't realize that. So John Carpenter, it says here, was so displeased with his own performance that he never cast himself again. Uh, The director plays the church janitor who talks to Hal Holbrook's priest near the beginning of the film. Carpenter it was one of the most terrifying moments in my life, having to deliver these lines to an accomplished actor. His final verdict on his own performance is, uh, I'm terrible, so I stopped doing roles after this movie, except for hol- helicopter pilots and walk-ons. So I totally missed that, I guess. I mean, I watched the movie like five times, and I guess I did not remember what John Carpenter looked like when he was young. I'm still thinking of, you know, I always think of the way he looks now when you see him, and, you know, 40 years ago, obviously, he was a lot younger. So that's pretty neat. And I probably I'm probably sound an idiot right now to people listening to this who are probably like, yeah, no shit, John Carpenter's the fucking Janner in the beginning. My bad. Also, so this is kind of fun, about 34 minutes into the film, uh, while they're walking through a church, uh, Janet Lee is startled by the sudden appearance of the priest, played by Hal Holbrook, who steps out of a dark corner. Uh, but that corner wasn't dark enough when they shot it, so you could see him standing there. Uh, to make the moment work better as a jump-scare, Carpenter darkened that part of the frame in post-production to keep him concealed. So that's fun. The star slash uh, his wife, which was Adrienne Barbeau at the time, was a uh, a smoker, right? And apparently she was a non-smoker and had to, like, do it for this movie and just, like, learn to do it over her, I guess. Which uh, I always feel like that would suck in a movie if, like, if I was ever an actor or something and I was forced to do something like that where it's like... I don't know. I feel like I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to do that. But Tommy Lee Wallace, real quick, more more fun facts here, right? He's a friend of Carpenter, and uh, he worked on Halloween with him, which I just watched the Netflix uh, movies that made us, and watched the episode about uh, Halloween. And this guy's who's uh, pretty cool. He's been around a lot, right? He appears as the shape, i.e., Michael Myers, in some Halloween shots, and in the fog. Most of the time, you see a ghost arm. It belongs to that guy. Right, so that's pretty cool. Also, last little fun thing here um, the reason the radio station plays like a lot of smooth jazz, right? It's just money. <laughs> it seems unlikely that a station with this format would be so popular uh, in a small town like this, but it's cheaper for filmmakers to get the rights to generic jazz recordings than uh, popular rock songs, so kind of fun. So, again, you know, this movie was not well received, although later became considered a minor horror classic, uh, though he also stated, uh, John Carpenter stated that um wasn't his favorite due to reshoots and low production values, which is one of the reasons why, ironically enough, the really shitty uh, remake in 2005 was even, he agreed to make it because he wasn't happy with this movie and then that movie turned out to be a steaming pile of dog dookie. So, uh, Rotten Tomatoes has a 75% rating for the original uh, The Fog. <laughs> It's uh you know everybody just they 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 liked it right and moving forward like I said it's become one of the kind of cult classics or whatever from that time period. The movie too is only like eighty nine minutes long even with the reshoots, so it's like it's very in and out, just like gets to the point, tells the story, and then goes the fuck on right. It Which it's it's perfect. I don't know the pacing is really great. Um, it's so easy to watch again because of the short length, but it gets everything it needs to say in and out so quick, and it's it's just a great movie. And uh, real quick though, speaking of Rotten Tomatoes, um <laughs> you know, it was based on the original uh, screenplay, but the remake was more of like a teen horror film. So it was, it was PG 13, and with just 18 pages of script written, the film was almost was was like green lit order by Revolution Studios and holds a four percent rating on Run tomatoes. So I would say I think it's on Amazon Prime right now. I think they both are actually just again for shits and giggles. Watch the remake if you just want to laugh at something that's terrible. But please watch this one because again, it's a classic and a five out of five. If you somehow have not seen it, and again, if you some for if you only associate the fog with the really bad remake, then please watch this one. And, I don't know, like I said, highly recommend it, and, again, it's one of the best. John Carver is one of the best, obviously, so uh, you can't go wrong with it, right? So, that's it. I'm done this week. Next week, I will return with the fifth and final installment of this year's October Spooktacular, where I will discuss my second favorite uh, Friday the 13th movie, Jason Takes Manhattan. So... For The final Countdown, uh, as always, I'm Jeremy Levine, and I hope to be in your ears next week, everybody. Thanks. Take care.